Good morning again, and thanks for joining us at Prairie View Christian Church. Well, we pick up today in our Churchy Stuff sermon series, discussing the things that we Christians do that might seem strange, illogical, or even annoying to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus. And we're also seeking to refresh our minds about why we do these things that so many people might call churchy in a derogatory way. So two weeks ago, we covered preaching, and then last week, Zach covered singing. Both of those things occur here in this room every single Sunday morning, week in and week out. But today we shift to another Sunday morning practice of our church and pretty much every Christian church out there. It's that practice that might seem particularly unappealing to non-believers and can make even the most mature Christian cringe. And we're talking, of course, about giving. As we mentioned here regularly, there's more than one way to give to the church. Energy, talents, service, all types of different things. But today we are specifically focusing on finances. So why exactly do we Christians give of our money? With that, open up to Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. If you didn't give money... We wouldn't have Bibles to give out. So there you go. That's part of why we give. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy and the privilege of worshiping you. Uh, As Zach preached last week, if we didn't worship you, if we didn't sing, if we didn't honor you, the rocks themselves would cry out. Uh, You are Worthy of our worship, you deserve all of our worship. And so, Father, I pray that the worship we offer you today would bring you glory. And, Father, as we get together for worship, we think of the classic things. We think of preaching, we think of singing, we think of praying. But sometimes we don't really think of giving. Uh, And, Father, as David Richards mentioned a couple weeks ago, giving is very much part of our worship. It's not just something that we tack on at the end of a service or do it because we simply have to, but it is very much a part of our worship. And so, Father, I pray that every aspect of our worship would be honoring to you this morning, our singing, our preaching, our praying, and our giving. But I also pray that it would be beneficial for us, because again, all the worship and creation is due you, and ultimately, we fulfill our purpose best when we worship you. So, Father, again, we give this morning to you. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. Thank you that we have the privilege of calling you our father because of what he did on the cross. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, whether you like it or not, we live in a world that is dominated by money. We hear sayings like cash is king. He who has the money has the power. Follow the money or money talks. As a result of that, we spend inordinate amounts of time and energy thinking and talking about money. On a personal level, we stress about debt, student loans, saving for retirement, bills, wills, life insurance, budgets, and emergency funds. Businesses worry about return on investment and profit margins. Politicians and activists argue about tax reform, income inequality, our country's massive financial deficit, and the best ways to jumpstart the economy. 
You put it all together and it's enough to make your head spin. For good or for ill, money plays a role in so many decisions every single one of us makes day in and day out. And that's not just a modern phenomenon. Money dominated much of the ancient world as well. Money was on people's minds back then the same way it's on our minds now. Ancient people worried about finances in many of the same ways that we do. And if you open the Bible, you'll find that scripture speaks about money maybe more than you would think. So it's safe to say that if money was important back then, if money is important today, and if it is consistently addressed in scripture, perhaps we ought to talk about it in the church as well. Maybe we shouldn't be so embarrassed to talk about it, at least from time to time even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Now, as I prepared for the sermon this week, I found myself mostly in the Gospel of Luke. And I was taken aback by how much Jesus himself talks about money. He talks about how his disciples should and shouldn't view it and what they should and shouldn't do with it. Just a few examples. Luke chapter 6, we read the Beatitudes, where Jesus preaches that blessed are the poor, For theirs is the kingdom of God and pronounces woes on the rich. Now, naturally, there's more than one way to be poor. Jesus certainly has more than money in mind, but he probably has money in mind as well. In Luke chapter 16, there's the parable of the dishonest manager, where Jesus tells a story about a servant who didn't handle his master's finances well and ultimately lost his job over it. Jesus ends the parable by saying that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. And then in Luke chapter 21, there's the story of the widow's offering. When Jesus commends that poor woman for giving generously to the temple, even though she had next to nothing to call her own. Over and over again, whether it's directly or indirectly, and whether we like it or not, Jesus speaks about money. But there are three stories from Luke's gospel that we haven't talked about yet that I want to focus on this morning. The first one is found in Luke chapter 12, verse 13, the passage that we opened up to, and we start reading there. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared. Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
So a man seeks out Jesus, hoping that Jesus will help him settle the dispute with his brother over their inheritance. But instead of helping this man acquire the wealth that he wants, that he thinks is rightfully his, Jesus warns him against covetousness. And as he tends to do, Jesus issues this warning by telling a story. That farmer has a banner harvest. His barns are overflowing with crops. So he decides to tear down his old barns and build new ones. That way he'd have room to store all the surplus. But notice early on in the story that there's only one person in the story. The farmer. There's been no mention of family, no mention of friends, no mention of neighbors, and he doesn't even mention God. When the farmer talks, he only talks to himself. He says to his own soul. But I guess it's okay if he's all alone, right? Because with all his recent success, he has everything he'll ever need or want. He's got his retirement all planned out. He can relax, eat, drink, be merry, and never have to worry about farming again. But that's when God butts in on the farmer's plans. God tells the man that he will die that very night. He won't even get to enjoy the wealth that he's acquired for himself in this life. And he'll face judgment in the next. And then Jesus ends by challenging that man concerned about his inheritance. And challenges his disciples and challenges us to focus more on being rich toward God. And less on being rich in this life. Now we've got two stories to go in the Gospel of Luke. But I want to stay and focus on this one for just another minute or two. Because I have to admit, I find Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 21 to be maybe the most jarring verses of everything that we'll read today. Why is it? I find these verses so disturbing. In a good way, because sometimes we need to be disturbed. I find these so disturbing because I look at that farmer from Jesus' story, also referred to as the rich fool. I look at him and I see myself. I see us. We work hard and save up. Some people might say hoard, but save up sounds better. All so that one day we can achieve the same goal that he achieved. We look forward to the day when we can say the same thing to our soul that he said to his. We want to say, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. We long for the day when we won't ever have to worry about money again. We have the same goals as that farmer. Now, naturally, I think we'd offer up the same justifications that the farmer would. We say things like, you know, I have what I have through good, honest, hard work. I was just trying to be responsible. Haven't I earned this? God gave it to me. Clearly, he wants me to enjoy it. Now, I'm not saying that retirement after a life of good, honest work is somehow sinful. That's not the lesson of the passage. The rich fool's core sin isn't that he didn't want to spend the rest of his life farming. 
His core sin is not saving up. His core sin is not being prudent with his wealth. His core sin is not planning ahead. As strange as it sounds, the rich fool's core sin, his big problem, was that he was too short-sighted. He thought only about this life and not the next. He thought only about himself and no one else. Not even God. That man was rich here and good for him. But he was poor in eternity. And that wouldn't help him in eternity. That's story number one. Story number two is Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. A story many of us know well. We read there. And a ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the ruler said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So another man approaches Jesus looking for help. He's concerned about an inheritance as well, but he's concerned about inheriting eternal life. The other man was concerned about inheriting wealth. This time it's a rich ruler. And unlike that foolish farmer of chapter 12, this man is very conscious of God. He's thinking about the things of God. He's thinking about eternal life. He's thinking about what comes next, but he's simply unsure how to get it. And then after some probing questions, Jesus gives him a clear answer. The answer he was looking for. Jesus says, if you want to enter eternal life, sell all you have. Give it to the poor and follow me. Pretty simple, pretty clear. But the man rejects Jesus's invitation and walks away sad. You think about it and the rich ruler either a didn't believe Jesus's answer was actually right. He thought he just made it up or B decided that his riches mattered more after all. The rich ruler is a living, breathing example of Jesus's warning back in chapter 16. That warning that no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. The rich ruler made his choice. So Jesus exposes this man's money as his idol. His money is the false God that he truly worships. And then Jesus issues that sobering warning. How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's the equivalent of a camel going through the eye of a needle. 
Charles Spurgeon famously said, It is bad to see our money become a runaway servant and leave us. But it would be worse to have it stop with us and become our master. It's often noted that Jesus doesn't tell everyone in the New Testament to sell everything they own and give it to the poor. And that's true. There are lots of people that Jesus meets, and he does not issue that command to them. But do you think he'd issue that command to you? Is money your idol? Because if it is, then maybe he would. And if he did issue that command to you, what would you say in response? It's impossible for anyone who rejects the one true God and worships a false God to enter the kingdom of God. But thankfully, God is merciful to sinners and idolaters. And we can be saved, but it's only possible by his grace alone and by the death and resurrection of Christ. But make no mistake, we should never forget that money is a particularly alluring and insidious idol. And like that rich ruler, we may not even fully realize when money has become our true master. And we must be on our guards. And then story number three, Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Jesus is sought out by yet another man, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the slime ball who's gotten rich through working for big bad Rome. But being in the presence of Christ brings about a change in Zacchaeus. He repents of his sin and commits to righting his wrongs and practicing generosity instead. Zacchaeus' inward change of heart and mind becomes visible through his outward actions. After being with Christ, Zacchaeus simply can't view money and handle money the way he did before. So three men, a man trying to get his portion of the inheritance, a rich ruler looking for eternal life, and a tax collector who's acquired all of his wealth by less than honest means. The rich fool in the parable of chapter 12, the farmer with the great harvest, he came into a lot of wealth, but he didn't think of God at all. The rich ruler liked the thought of being with God, at least in theory, but he liked his money more. And Zacchaeus gladly gave his money away because he found that being in the presence of Christ is far better. 
These three stories help give us an understanding of what many may refer to as the kingdom economy. The ways that we Christians ought to look at and manage our wealth differently from the rest of the world. We're called to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. We're called to resist money's tendency to become an idol demanding our worship. And last but not least, we're called to give generously as an outward sign of the inward change of heart and mind that God has given us. I recently talked to a couple who came into a pretty large sum of money through an inheritance. A family member of theirs had passed away. And so they went to a financial advisor to try and get some input on what they should do with this money. How can they use it wisely? How can they steward it well? How can they make it last long? How can they simply be good stewards of this gift from God? And so the financial advisor looked at their entire financial situation. He looked at their expenses. He looked at their budgets. He looked at their goals. He looked at their income. He looked at their age. He looked at their retirement plans. He looked at everything. And the financial advisor came back to them and said, you know, I think I have a pretty good plan in place how you can use this money well. But one question I have for you is, would you be willing to give a little bit less money to your church? And the couple was just totally taken aback that, no, we're not going to give less money to our church. What are you talking about? They simply didn't understand how how he would have the audacity to make that kind of suggestion. But what it came down to is that the financial advisor crunched the numbers and it simply didn't make sense to him that someone would just give so much money away. It didn't make sense to him within the world's economic philosophy. And at a certain level, he's right in the world's economy where cash is king, where he who has the money has the power, where money talks. In that kind of world, in that kind of economy, you ought to store up as much money as you possibly can, not give it away. In other words, it shouldn't surprise us when our understanding of finances as disciples of Christ, when that clashes with the world's economy, because we're part of the kingdom economy. And the kingdom economy is quite different from our world's economy. So that's why we give. We give because having been taught kingdom economics, we know that we don't work hard just so we can save up, retire, and die, and that be the end of it. God graciously reminds us not to make the mistake the rich fool made. We know that we have eternal life ahead of us. We give because having been taught kingdom economics, We're not naive to the fact that money can easily become an idol. And God graciously warns us not to fall into the same trap that the rich ruler fell into. We give because having been taught kingdom economics, we know that we don't have the option of greedily acquiring wealth through wicked and dishonest means the way that Zacchaeus once did. We don't hoard and hoard and hoard some more just so we can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. We repent of those sins where needed, and we commit to give generously. Now, of course, giving of our finances to good, God-honoring causes glorifies God. It benefits those who receive our giving, and it protects us from the dangers of wealth that we've talked about today. 
The temptations that scripture is so consistently clear about. Now, I don't believe that God is calling us to give away everything all the time. Every single one of us. I do believe that God genuinely blesses people. That God genuinely does want us to have things to enjoy. But we should also acknowledge that when used well and given generously, money can serve others and serve God. But if we're not careful, we can quickly find ourselves serving it. As Spurgeon said, money can be a good and useful servant, but money can also be a terrible master that leads us away from the things of God. Now, what exactly does this look like in the life of the church? Supposedly, this sermon was about giving, but all we've talked about is what Jesus says about money. Well, now that we've seen this big vision of kingdom economics, I think the Apostle Paul can help us understand it a little bit better. He can help us flesh it out. You know, Paul talks about money quite a bit himself. He doesn't hesitate to ask believers to give generously to their local churches, especially when those churches use the money to help suffering believers and accomplish fruitful ministry. Paul specifically warns churches not to appoint leaders who are lovers of money. And Paul feels no shame in arguing that leaders in the church should have their needs met through the generosity of a congregation. But as we close, there's one more text that is particularly worth reading. And it comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6. Paul says there, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And then jumping forward to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love this passage because we see Paul, the pastor, at work. He's simply trying to give good, wise, pastoral advice to these believers that he cares so much about and to Timothy, who he has mentored so well. Paul says things like, you know, be content to simply have your needs met. He gives that warning that desiring to be rich is a deadly temptation. Just ask Zacchaeus. It led him into all kinds of sin. Paul says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He charges the rich not to be haughty. He charges them not to set their hopes on their wealth the way the rich farmer did. He challenges them to do good and be generous. Because much good can be done. Through a generous believer. And in doing all these things, Paul tells these wealthy believers that they can have confidence that their treasure truly is laid up in heaven 
even if they have less treasure here. Now, many weeks, the person who gives our communion and offering meditation makes a point to give the reasons why we don't give. We say over and over again that we do not give to pay God back for what he's done for us. We could never pay him back. We do not give to impress God or impress other people or acquire some kind of leverage over people. That's not why we give. We don't give to get as if giving to the church somehow entitles us to more blessings from God. And we also acknowledge that there's no formula set out in the New Testament about how much each person should give. We don't have a blanket policy that you have to obey. We simply ask people to give generously. We challenge you and encourage you to operate with a kingdom economy mindset. And of course, we also hope that you would pray and that you would hold us accountable as leaders of the church to manage this money well, to manage it in a way that honors God. So please, if you trust the leaders of this church, if you value the ministry that we do here, and if you have the common sense to realize that money doesn't grow on trees, even if they're planted on church property, we simply ask you to give generously. Give out of obedience, but give out of joy. Give not to check the box, but as an act of worship. Give not out of bitter obligation, but out of gratitude to God. And don't just give to the church. Give to your friends. Give to your family. Give to your neighbors. Give to missionaries. Give to other ministries that do good, God-honoring ministry. Simply be generous for the glory of God and the good of others. Now you've sat here and listened for some 30 minutes now about money and why Christians give. And there are different reasons. We give away so that our money won't become an idol to us. We give in order to avoid temptation. We give because God can do wonderful things with finances generously offered. But I'd like to close with the best thing that anyone has ever said about why Christians give. And really the dominating motivation that I would leave you with this morning. That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Just a few verses before what Craig read earlier in the service. Paul says there, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We give a small portion of what we've been given because Christ gave his life for our salvation. And we are rich in heaven because Jesus became poor, leaving the riches of heaven behind to be mocked and killed for our sins. We give a little because God has given us so much. We have treasure laid up in heaven, not because of how generous we are here. We have treasure laid up in heaven because of what Christ already gave. Thus, our generosity, every single bit of it, is an act of worship. Our generosity is a response of gratitude and a response of joy to the salvation that God has already given us. We give because he gave. We worship because he gave. We have salvation because he gave. And we have treasure laid up in heaven because he gave. 
even if the world thinks we have nothing here. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for texts like these that remind us where we find our hope, where we find our joy, where we find our security, where we find our salvation, and it's not in money. It's not in wealth. It's not in possessions. Father, we are rich because you have given us salvation, because you have been gracious to us. We might be poor in this life to the eyes of some people. It maybe could be argued that if we wanted to have more, we could have more. But Father, again, ultimately, in eternity, you've given us everything we'll ever need and far more than we could ever deserve, far more than we could ever even attempt to earn. You are a generous giver, the most generous giver. And so, Father, I pray that your word and your spirit would shape us to be more like you and would turn us into generous givers as well. I pray that through our giving here and through our giving elsewhere, through our generosity with our finances and generosity with everything else we have, I pray that you would be glorified, that your church would be built up, and that other people would be served and helped and encouraged. We love you. We praise you. Thank you that Christ gave his life for us on the cross. Thank you that he rose from the grave. And thank you that we have an inheritance to look forward to that is far greater than money. That moth and rust will not destroy. That thieves cannot break in and steal. We have treasure in heaven. And we thank you for it. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.